0: Uh, we, were, uh, we were packing for a, or preparing, I should say, for um, a missions trip, and uh, it was, I think I want to say like at least 10 days, if not more. It might have been two weeks total. And, um, you know, typically uh, in youth, and this was a youth group, and so I think I was probably a junior, maybe I was a senior in high school, and Rebecca and I were dating, and um, the girls always would show up for missions trips like they were moving, like, it was, they were going to stay there forever, right? Except for, like, with their luggage. They'd show up, they'd have this bag that they could fit themselves, plus all of their clothes inside of. And uh, you always wonder, like, what was in it. Well, anyway, Rebecca um, wagered me that she could pack in a smaller bag than I could. And I was like, no way. So I found this little duffel bag, just a little sports duffel bag. And I crammed all the essentials in there, whatever was required on the list. And then I carried everything else in my, my um my pillowcase, you know, and I was like pretty proud of myself. I was like, there's no way she's going to beat me at this. And she showed up, and she didn't even try. She set me up for the whole thing. She came loaded down like, a, you know, a camel preparing to cross the desert, and here I was with like one pair of underwear, you know. It was not good. And uh, so she taught me a lesson that day. And uh, it was, don't trust her, so... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I it never occurred to me that she was putting me on, and I, I, I did. I made so much effort into making sure I fit everything into that bag, and I think I came back with less than I started with because I probably wore holes in the clothes that I had or something. But uh, anyway, I want to talk this morning about being prepared and um equipped for everything, if you will. Equipped for everything, the Holy Spirit, his purposes for all, and um. Uh, I think uh, making the segue from the last few weeks uh, will be easier if I recap. And so I don't like to spend a ton of time on recap. I, I usually like to say, we'll just go back and listen to it. Um, but I don't, th- that won't serve purposes today. And so um, let, me, let me help you trace the way that we've traced this little section of Acts. And the way that we, we started it was to, we kind of took a, a panorama view of the beginning of Stephen being chosen. Uh, as one of the servants in the council, and then how that service pushed into the rest of his life, and that ended up creating some some drama for him. But even in spite of all those things, we see the end result of this this short like lived uh, event of Stephen's whole whole life and his whole purposes in the church comes uh, and, and plants the seed for all these other bigger things that we recognize as really important um, events in the life of the the big sea church, like. Um, the the conversion of the uh, uh, of Saul to Paul the Apostle Paul and uh, the the spread of the gospel outside of Jerusalem because him him being martyred uh, becomes this. The, the impetus for um, everyone else sort of now criticizing the church. And so we, we kind of looked at the the, the, the the bookends of it to say, look, that sometimes the things that are happening in our lives are, are connected to other things. Remember we talked about cause and effect and how God has purposes in those things. And then we talked about God's purposes in those things and how um, the fact that, you know, we, we pray to God and um, we believe that we pray not just, that we are doing some exercise because it's good for us, but because we actually believe that God will respond to the things that we're petitioning and when you think about the content of our prayers or, or what it is that we believe by praying or by asking for God to do anything it's that God would intervene into our our normal affairs into the things that normally are progressing and would bring something else about the things that we can't normally do right so so that is uh, when you think about it the, the content of, of any prayer and then this week, we're, we're, we're tracking that into, well, what is, how does that happen? Or what does that look like? And um, so, so that is, uh, that's where we're at in the narrative and kind of the way that we've been tracing it for, for what Stephen does. Now, um, now to, to, to zoom in on the text part of it, I'll, I'll tell you where we're at with Stephen. Stephen is before the Sanhedrin, which is like, remember, the religious and the political authority in that day. And um, he's being uh, questioned by the Sanhedrin because of the, the, the things that he was saying within the synagogue. The synagogue was the place you would go with other people. Remember, your people, my people, but not really like your family always. And you would talk about the Word of God, and you would discuss those things. And it says um, that Stephen's um, arguments, the things that he was saying, no one could answer what he was saying. He was speaking with so much wisdom and uh, so much insight that no one could respond. Well, they were frustrated by frustrated by this, and so they drum up some false witnesses. Remember, and they accuse them of four things, of blasphemy of, of God, of Moses, this holy place, right, and, and uh, the law. And so he begins to address those things by giving a, like a, an abbreviated version of the history of Israel. And he does so by, by painting this picture for us uh, of select events. But he's, he's moving the pieces along so that we can see how God has been intervening in the lives of Israel all, all throughout, even in spite of the fact that occasionally the people that God has chosen and he's um, raised up for specific purposes, not only do they themselves make wrong choices But the response to God's raising up and bringing people um, to deliver them has been rejection of that. So um, when Stephen goes to respond to the accusations against him, Stephen, we're accusing you of blasphemy of these these specific things, which was an offense punishable by the death penalty. He was the only one that carried that uh, for the Jews to be able to carry it out on their own. So it had to be some kind of religious charge. But Stephen doesn't answer for himself. He doesn't answer like, hey, I didn't say that, or here's what I did say. He instead launches into the, the, the history of Israel, which uh, is an important thing because it ta- it's, it's repeating to Israel their own uh, presuppositions about who they are. It's re- reciting for them the promises that they say they believe in. And it, it, it's, it's, um, it's rehearsing for us, in effect, the same story over and over On individual levels and then on like bigger levels and and over and over it's it's on repeat the God is a faithful God who's made a promise and in spite of the fact that uh, the people reject his deliverers that um, the individuals sometimes try to get their hands around the the promises that God's made and enact those on their own like don't don't forget remember Abraham decided to have a child on his own and that um, Joseph told his brothers they were all going to serve him and Moses tried to deliver the people by his own hand is this jogging some memories Hopefully so. All right, so, so um, Stephen's been rehearsing how um, it, it's not been a, a straight path for the Jews. And the irony of this whole situation is that um, what, they're, what they're now accusing Stephen of doing is the thing that they have been guilty of historically now. But what they've done is, in hindsight, is to venerate or to, to raise the, the honor level of the things that they historically had rejected. So they rejected Moses when he came as the deliverer and the conqueror. And uh, remember, they, you know, who, who is this guy? We, they, we don't know where he's at. We'll just make a new leader, and we'll make our own gods, and what became of him. And so they rejected him, and um, I was going somewhere with that, and now it just left my brain. But uh, uh, so uh, that, that story's been on repeat, and... Um, I don't know where, what, I, what I said there. Sorry. God had plans and purpose in intervening, executing his plan through the hands of the people that he, that he raised up. So whether it was good choices or bad choices, whether they were servants or rebels, God is using um, these people to move um, forward his promises. But um, this, is, this has painted the big picture for us. And um, that wasn't just to help us know the history of Israel. I mean, that, um, that's not really useful to you. And uh, I so, so we went behind that and we said, well, what, what is actually the purpose of, of learning how God is a faithful God and how he still brings about his purposes in spite of the things that are going on? Well, um, the point of the application for us was to recognize that um, it allows us to connect God's, some of God's beginnings and ends in certain events because what they started as and what they brought about, even in the things that we would think um, as Israel, re- oh, that's where I was going with that. As Israel rejected Moses, it was that rejection that brought about other purposes. As they rejected Joseph and they sold him into slavery and it made him be in Egypt and then he rises to power there and that saves their people from this famine. So all of the things that are happening um, come to a specific purpose. So that, that's where I was going with that, that particular thought. And this is all happening when we look at it at the, on the picture that's being painted. It seems to be happening mostly through the hands of men. It's mostly happening through the hands of men. That God raises up somebody for a specific purpose, and they execute God's purposes. So, it appears from our end to, to be that the story is being painted. But when you zoom out, the picture's bigger, and there's a hand painting that picture. And I said that hand has always been, always been God. He's always been the one bringing about His purpose. And and so, how does that happen, or what does that look like? And that's really the question that um, we're answering, or asking and answering today. But it's a bigger, it's a bigger story than that, and. Um, so, so we can only really brush with what Stephen addresses here because otherwise we'd be in like a 15-week a series on the Holy Spirit and that wasn't my intention and we're not going to do that. So with that being said, let me pray this morning uh, for God's help to say what uh, needs to be said and that he would prepare us to receive um, what he would speak. So Father, I ask this morning that you would um, help us as your people. Father, you promised to um, be the one that works um, truth into us, and um, it's your word that is truth, that plants a seed, that bears fruit. So Father, I ask that this morning, hearing your word, and the preaching of your word, and the declaration of your word, would not just be something to gain um, knowledge in our brains, but that it would go down to our heart, where it can um, bear roots, and bring up fruit um, that pleases you. Father, I ask that you would do this for us because we can't do it for ourselves. So give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are flesh to receive what you would say this morning. I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't often get lost in the recap version, but I, uh, I wanted to make sure that um, I, I got that out to, to, to pace forward for, for what's happening here because I, I think there's so many elements of this that I could grab to, to, to illustrate a point. Um, but to, to, to your ears, um, it's not a shocking thing for me to um, assert that the Holy Spirit is doing something. Um, the Holy Spirit ha- has some necessity in your life. But I think like when, when we talk about that and we actually get to like what's underneath that, you're like, yes, I, I get that. I get that it's essential. I even understand that, you know, God is Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But like when you get to the under, underpinnings of that, I mean, we're not really sure what to make of a lot of it. And, um, so I want you to just look, look at the text with me for a few moments. And we're, we're informed several different times that Stephen was someone who was full of the Spirit. He's someone who's full of the Spirit. Um, and uh, back in, into chapter 6 in 6.3 and 6.5 and 6.8... And then in 710 and 755, these all assert in some way that the Holy Spirit is having an effect in the life of Stephen. Stephen is someone who is full of the Spirit. And it's given him wisdom and guidance, and it's filling him with truth. And it's um, him being able to do signs and wonders. And it's because he's full of the Spirit. And the Father is accomplishing things on earth through the hands of regular people, vessels like you and me, through the power of the Spirit. By means of the Son. The Spirit has not changed uh, since forever, right? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God is sovereign, and God is unchanging. That also means that the Spirit is sovereign, and the Spirit is unchanging. So the Spirit is leading, empowering, He's guiding, He's teaching, He's speaking, He's enabling, and those who are filled with the Spirit, then, are doing the things that I just mentioned. They're, they're filled with power, they're speaking, they're witnessing, they're... Um, they're um, Uh, teaching they're inviting they're encouraging they're rebuking they're convicting they're healing and all this was something that was expected it should have been expected because it's it's repeated over and over uh, from the beginning of uh, scripture pointing to another time where there would be another outpouring or a different access to the spirit than had historically been available and this uh, is pointed out by Stephen specifically um, when he says that um, I will raise up uh, from, from you a prophet like me. And uh, he, he will come and to him it is that you should listen to. And so he knew that there was going to be um, Jesus coming and that Jesus had promised uh, when he came that he would leave. And when he left, he wouldn't leave them forever, but he would leave them with another. That would be the Holy Spirit. And so the intro to this is that Stephen is full of the Spirit. And then look at the end of his speech in verse fifty-one, he says, "You stiff-necked people, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist what the Holy Spirit." He, he connects everything that he just said, all the history, and then all of the the, the signs, all of um, the prophecies. Everything was pointing forward to the fact that um, Jesus was the Messiah. But he he says. All of the testimony was by way of the Holy Spirit. He effectively wraps it all up and he says, the Holy Spirit was the one who was doing all this. And your resistance to it, then historically and now me declaring it, is also a resistance to the Holy Spirit. So it's not news to us necessarily to hear about the Holy Spirit or what the Holy Spirit might do. Um, but The Holy Spirit is, is working um, always, from, from the beginning of creation into now. And so the reason why I think we, we struggle with sort of sorting things out is because we, we do well with very clean-cut categories and uh, very compartmentalized. This is what God does, this is what the Son does, and this is what the Holy Spirit does. And when we can make those distinctions pretty clearly, then we feel uh, okay about our understanding of what's going on there. But, but the, um, let me show you why this doesn't quite work. So in uh, the, second, the second line of Genesis, so in the beginning, God created, but then we find out in the second line, the Holy Spirit is the one who's, who's hovering over the waters. So there's the Spirit. And then it, it says... Uh, You know, all creation happens, and so we're like, okay, wait. So the Holy Spirit's there, and he's there at creation. And then we find out in Colossians that Jesus, it's Jesus who created everything. And everything's created for Jesus, and by Jesus, and through Jesus. And he's upholding it by the power of his word. And so you see that both things are asserted. There's not a clean-cut category. It's not, well, God created by the power of his word, or the Holy Spirit created because he was there hovering over the waters, and it's his energy or his, you know, divine presence that's making that happen. And it's not Jesus who was just there fashioning things out of, you know, nothing. It's, it's all. And so they're all created. And so you see sort of the intertangled web there of the Trinity and why that makes it difficult for us then to tease out, well, what does it mean that we live in the new covenant under the era of the Holy Spirit and that he's doing something in us and he's doing something for us? And uh, my assertion for you this morning is that um, the Holy Spirit is God's spiritual presence with us, and now in us. God's spiritual presence, with us, and now in us. And presence carries with it a lot of other weight or a lot of other ideas with it. Uh, if, If somebody, just think about the idea, if somebody is present with you, all that that would entail. And then most of those ramifications would carry over to the fact that God is with you or even in you, right? So presence has the idea of God's glory, or his weight, or his um, reputation, or um, his worthiness. So his, his glory it comes along with his presence. His authority, um, if, if you're you know, traveling with uh, the president or something like that, and you happen to be riding in his, uh, his limo, you're going to get all of the respect of his authority and whatever it is that he wants or whatever it is that he demands. And so that, that has the idea of uh, presence. So the testimony of, of God's presence. Well, this, this, this one God actually is here. He's, he's present with me. He's not some person I've made up. He's not something that is out there in the ether that's you know fictitious and uh, at my demands or at my wins and all the power that goes along with, with that. The assurance of somebody actually being present with you. It's not your alone, and I hope you can make it, I'll give you a good attaboy and encouragement, but that's not the same thing as, as true assurance of, of God being with you, present with you. His words, somebody talking to you, I should have said voice there. God's words actually being with you and having conversation and privileges that are afforded by being one of God's own. And so all of this idea of presence um, is carried into the reality that we we have the Holy Spirit who, who is God's spiritual presence with us. And presence is now, if you look at the, the whole of the testimony, uh, becomes a theme when you consider it in light of all of the broad spectrum of what presence could mean. It's now a theme in what it is that Stephen's been saying. He, he starts out with Abraham, who's in a foreign land, who's just a, a nobody. He's Abram, right? And, and God shows up. And uh, he he does that to say, look, God's presence wasn't only always in this one place that you think God's presence was. And and so he begins to address all of the things that he's being accused of blaspheming by showing that God was never abiding by their little box of rules, but that God's uh, presence and then his word and his power and his testimony and all of the things that they are accusing Stephen of were always part of who God is, and, and, and they weren't relegated to this. And specifically, we see that in the tabernacle. And he talks about how he spends a long time on, how, on Moses' his life, and it's the, the, the great portion of um, his testimony, and how Moses was the one who received all the plans for the tabernacle, and they built it, and that's where um, God's you know, glory would dwell. And so God's tabernacle was the place where his people would go, where they would expect his presence to be. And whatever, wherever they would go, the tabernacle went with them, which meant that God was going to go with them. And he was with them. His presence was always with them wherever they went. And then it says, he, they took it with them when they went into the promised land and they dispossessed the nations under Joshua's leadership. And so they had God's presence with them when they did that. And so eventually, um, they dispossessed all the nations they were supposed to uh, for the time. And uh, David is ruling as king. And he says, um, it's in my heart to build a temple. I want to build a permanent place for God's presence to be with, be with his people. And... Uh, and so initially, he, he tells Nathan, the prophet, that he's going build to this, build this tabernacle or build this, uh, excuse me, this temple. And uh, Nathan says, yeah, do, do everything that's in your heart. And then uh, he ends up having to renege on that and saying, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, you have too much blood on your hands. You've been a man of war, and it won't be you, but it'll be your son that builds a temple. And so Solomon builds the, the permanent residence, if you will, um, of God's presence. But we find out here um, in verse 49 that uh, that wasn't That wasn't sufficient. I'll back up to verse um, 47 so that you can track with the story. It was Solomon who built a house, if you will, a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did my hand not make all of these things? This psalm this essentially echoes the idea that um, it, it doesn't matter how glorious the temple was or how big they could build it, it wasn't enough to contain God. And, and by, um, secondary to that fact is it, it's God who gave them all the stuff to build the temple. So it's like, what are you offering me by building me a place for my permanent residence? When Solomon dedicated the temple, he knew that this was the truth. this was the truth. In 1 Kings uh, chapter 8, uh, in, in verse 27, he says, Will God indeed dwell on earth? Like will his his presence really be here with us? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less the house I have built. He he understands that that though God has has chosen to allow His presence to be with the people, that um, that that the temple didn't wasn't the the place that contained, if you will, wasn't the box that God's presence had to be in. And it's interesting here that it says um, God God's proverbial asks the question through the prophet Isaiah, "What will be?" the the place of my rest not where will be the place of my rest and and that's that's an important theme that's carried out because wherever it is that that the people have wound up following the promise or or carrying the promise it's it's there that they find out that God is when Joseph's in prison in Egypt it says God was with him well how was God with him how could, he, how could God's presence possibly be with him if, if, if God's presence is only in the temple or if he's only in the highest heaven? Well, he had to be there in some way for that to be asserted as truth. Well, he had to be there as the Holy Spirit with Joseph in Egypt, not confined to a specific land or into the temple, right? And he wasn't just confined to the laws or his presence in um, uh, in, the, in the tablets that uh, Moses had brought down off Mount Sinai when um, God's visible presence was manifested there. And so he says, he says what will be the place of uh, my rest? And this is an interesting Greek word because it means what or how, but not, not where. What or how? How will my presence be with a people? And that's, uh, that, that uh, gives indication and fits perfectly to what Jesus says when he has this dialogue uh, outside uh, the city of uh, Samaria with the Samaritan woman about how people can worship, how, how will they um, be able to respond to God and uh, Jesus simply says, "Look it, it, the hour is coming and is now here when people will worship in spirit and truth, right God is spirit, and he 's worshiped in spirit and in truth, and it won 't be here or there it won 't be on this mountain or that mountain, but it will be." Um, um, worship in spirit and truth. So the, the reality that there was a time coming where he wouldn't be confined to a certain place, and that to, to worship him fully would be to know him through his spirit, not through a place where he has to be confined to. And um, so, so presence isn't something that uh, was confined to a way of worship or just a certain place. And Stephen's going through great pains to show them that that's been true historically, and it's now true today, even in fullness. And so we, we walked through Acts 2 and all the Pentecost and all that it meant that um, God was sending his presence. But um, it, it's very clear that um, that, that it's, there's, some, there's a, a person, not just a thing or a what or a power that is um, giving God's people the ability to do the things that are bringing about his purposes. Um, Joseph I said, was one that it was talk, talked about where he was there, and it says that the, that the Lord was with him there. And then it says, um, when Moses, um, you know, when Moses was at the, uh, let's look at it in verse uh, 30. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame and a fire and a bush. So it's... Um, God's presence now in the form of an angel. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. He drew near to look, and there came the voice of the Lord. So now we have the voice of the Lord, an angel, and this burning bush. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare. Look, then look after they reject him. And um, in verse 35, he he did so by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. It's um, God's angel that empowered him that was in the bush. To do these things, that man led them out, performing signs and wonders in Egypt and at the Red Sea. Um, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. He keeps talking about this angel, this angel representing the presence. And then, if we were to actually go back and kind of thumb through the the, the story of the Exodus, it's the angel that uh, that Moses meets with at the the tent of meeting. He comes out, and uh, remember, they would watch to see if the if he would come to the opening of the tent, and if he did, everybody would worship in the camp. And then Moses would go in and, and meet with this angel. Well, who's the angel and why does it matter? And uh, so here's the payoff for three weeks of waiting About uh, and, and Stephen's face was that like an angel, okay? In verse 15 of um, chapter six, it says that as Stephen is testifying and he's, he's uh, reasoning with the people, it says that they're gazing at him. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of an angel, and uh, so, you know, uh, commentators uh, debate on what that actually means. Does it mean he's like serene and he just, you know, what, what, does, that, what does that entail? And um, if you look at the end of, of uh, Stephen's story, as he's being stoned, it says he looks into heaven and he sees Jesus exalted. He's standing at the right hand of God. Um, all of the times where um, something like this has happened it's primarily either with Moses and uh, encountering the angel, either on, the, uh, on Mount Sinai as he's receiving the law. It says he comes down and his face is glowing. Do you guys remember this, the story of Moses coming down his face was glowing? And so he had to cover his face up with a veil because he had been in the presence of God. And like, it's like the glory had like worn off on him. And so the people were terrified to hear the words of God from Moses. So he put a veil on his face. And then... Um, track to the New Testament, where Jesus uh, takes uh, Peter and John up on the mountain, and then it says he's transfigured before them, and he's like glowing and shining. And we see, uh, I think the reality here is this, that, that Jesus's presence, his spiritual presence in, in a glorified way has a way of rubbing off on people in a visible way. Like, you don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to worry about whether or not I'm making stuff up. I'm just telling you that... I, how would you know that somebody's face was like an angel unless it was visibly like an angel? I, I think his face is probably shining at this point, And it has to do with the fact that he was being empowered by the Spirit um, in the presence of, of Christ. And uh, so glowing angels, uh, excuse me, angels and glowing has to do with presence and testimony. Um, the ark was where the testimony was kept Inside of the tabernacle, inside of the place where they believe God's presence always was going to dwell. Moses encountered the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. He encountered the angel who showed him it would find out the plans for the tabernacle. And all of these times it says that he comes and uh, his face is shining. So real quick, 2 Corinthians 3. Because it's not just, um, it's not just supposed to be a spectacle for Moses. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, Paul is unpacking the beauty of what it means to be in the new covenant. And uh, what, what does that mean and, uh, and how, do, how does that uh, come, in, come into uh, play in our lives? And so he says, um, at the beginning, I'll just start. Are we, been, are we trying to commend ourselves or do we need a, some letters of recommendation from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts uh, to be known and read by all. And you, and you show... That you are a letter from Christ, delivered to us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Something that we're told was a promise of what would happen when God's spirit would come. In the new covenant, I, he said, when I give you spirit, uh, Larry read it in, uh, out of Jeremiah, the prophecy about, in those days, I will, uh, nobody will have to say, hey, know the Lord, because I, I'll write my laws on your hearts. Um, So such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves. Not that we claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at the face of Moses with its glory, which has been brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So um, Paul... um, let me just give you an interesting, like, parenthetical. Oh yeah, I, didn't, I hadn't thought about that. Um, so we find out about this this testimony of Stephen in the the council, uh, the Sanhedrin, and uh, most commentators point out, well, Stephen is, uh, is stoned, and Luke wasn't there. Luke's the guy that writes the book of Acts, and they're like, well, how do we know what it is that Stephen said? And uh, most people speculate that that it's that Saul. Who's part of the Sanhedrin at this moment, because he's the one that's there, he's the one that's affirming of the stoning. It's 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 him taking in the testimony of Stephen, and then later on, here he is speeding it back out in First Corinthians about what's happening in the new covenant and the glory of it. And I think probably, most likely, he's 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 telling you what he saw with Stephen. Um, we, we have the same kind of ministry, he's saying. It came with the Spirit. And um, when Moses came, he was just bringing down laws on tablets. And that was um, only leading to condemnation. That's all that the law could do. The law couldn't bring righteousness. He says that was coming to an end. But how much more will the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory, he asked in verse 8. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the part of the law, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if it was being brought to an end and came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the Israelites would not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. To an end. But their minds were hardened for this. For when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. It is Christ who takes it away. Okay? Okay. So don't get lost. We can get there, okay? I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statute. This is Ezekiel saying the same thing that Jeremiah said. Isaiah says the same thing. Moses pointed forward. He said, look, there's going to be another prophet. He's going to come. He's going to be greater than me. Listen to him. And how will you listen to him? Well, because you'll be able to... uh, you'll be able to listen to what he says because God's laws will be written on your heart because um, everybody will have the Spirit. I don't have time for it today. Is that my story usually? But read in Numbers, uh, I think it's Numbers 11, where the story of, um, you know, uh, Moses uh, as uh, anointing 70 elders of Israel and there's two guys that are outside the camp, uh, Medab and another Dab. I can't remember his name right now. And they're, they're outside the camp, and they too receive the Spirit. And Joshua is like frustrated that um, these two guys outside the camp um, also receive the Spirit, and they begin to prophesy. And uh, he goes to Moses, and he says, um, you know, tell, uh, tell those guys, rebuke them, basically. And he says, no, I, I won't rebuke them. I wish that all of God's people would have the spirit so that they wouldn't have to come to me to listen to me, to have God's wisdom. And so essentially is this, all of these people were looking forward knowing that this time was coming. Now, if you just examine the content of what it says here, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new heart, a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone, I'll give you a heart of flesh. What is that? What's happening in that moment? Well, it's, 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 it's re- regeneration, it's salvation. This is what, what, what it is to be born again. And this brings up the other aspect of why Stephen goes to great pains to talk about circumcision and the covenant of circumcision coming after the promise. We think of the idea that um, we've been uh, equipped for this life of faith uh, with the Holy Spirit. We're not, I honestly I I think we're, we're just not sure what to do with that. Is that just like mean the gifts that we get, and when do I use those, or how do I use those? How do I even know if I have a gift? Um, and so the, I, I think the question we ask is... Um, the question I asked you at the beginning uh, of the primer, which is is equipped being having everything you you might need packed away in this proverbial luggage case or is it everything that you you will need? And if it's everything that you will need or everything that you might need, depending on which side you fall on, how do we know that we're equipped for everything that we'll face in the Christian life uh, by the Holy Spirit? And um, Here's where I want to draw this into some kind of application. I think we look at the testimony of how the Holy Spirit showed up for all of the people of faith right when they were in some difficult season or some difficult time. And we think about the things in our lives that we might need the Holy Spirit's help for, right? Well, when I get into such and such bind, maybe the Holy Spirit will be there to you know, pick the lock of my jail cell. Or maybe like right when I need you know, a loaf of bread, it'll just fall from heaven or something like that. And you think, well, that, maybe that's the way that being equipped looks like. Or that perhaps the Holy Spirit is, um, is, is moving me. He's guiding me through life and he's taking me to the places I need to be because those are what are preparing me for somewhere down the road, in which case I'll be fully equipped by the time I arrive at this destination with all the things that I need at that moment. And I think that's how we think about life. We think about it as like this trail of things and, uh, you know, there's the gift of the Spirit. Yeah, His presence is with me, but, but somehow, you know, in my bag, my proverbial luggage case for life and spiritual things, He's packing things in there, you know? And then when I need it, I just rummage through this luggage thing and uh, I pull out the right thing so that I'm equipped for everything I might need. Is, this, is that a fair assessment of how you might look at how the Holy Spirit is, is, is equipping you or giving you or helping you. And um, this is a, a misgiven for, for several reasons. But um, the Holy Spirit has equipped us not with stuff so that we can pull it out at the right moment. And, and God's hand over the events of your life to bring about specific purposes is not to walk you through a specific situation so that when it replays again, you might know what to do. Um, before I give you the resolution on why I say that, I, I want you to see that that was true historically for all of the people where God's present with them. Um, how does, I'll just use Joseph because he popped into mind. Joseph um, is sold into slavery by his brothers, right? He's taken from his home, his family, his land. He, he's, uh, he's sold into slavery and uh, he, he's, uh, he serves a man there and he's, uh, he gets accused of something he didn't do, and he finds himself in prison. And uh, how, how does any of the stuff about slavery, of working for this guy's household, being falsely accused, uh, being in prison, are those things really like stuff that's being loaded in Joseph's proverbial bag so that he can address those again later on? Well, that never happens again. He doesn't go back to prison. And uh, when he's in prison... He uh, he's very outwardly spoken about the fact that um, that it's it's God who's with him. That it's the it's, it's only by God's power that he has the ability to interpret these dreams. And uh, so he begins, you know, serving God wherever he's at with the power that God has equipped him with. And uh, so he he ends up getting out of prison because of the the ability he's been equipped with by God uh, by. God's spirit. And uh, he goes and he's serving in the house of Pharaoh. And it says Pharaoh recognizes that the spirit is with Joseph. Um, and then he, he serves and he raises to power in Pharaoh's house. And then he governs the land and he governs well. And uh, everything that God had promised became true about um, him and his family coming to bow down and serve him. He, he uh, ends up being great. And God uses him powerfully in a lot of different ways. But if you, if you just examine sort of the story of his life and the things that he goes through—it's there's nothing, for the most part, that gets put in his proverbial luggage bag that wouldn't just be um, other like you know souvenirs. It's, it's not like a toolbox that he pulls something out of later. And so you you say, well, is that true about everybody else? And I would say I, I think it's pretty much true about everybody else. And the reason why um, this is the way that it is is because the Holy Spirit's purpose is not to give you a bunch of stuff to make you self-sufficient for life. And all of the things that you go through trusting the hand of God to produce something in you are not to rehearse some situation so that you will be sufficiently able to handle that situation when you encounter it. In fact, the, the main purpose of the Holy Spirit is to engender faith in a God who is with you. So that in the moment, you don't rummage through your bag to look through the thing that maybe you might be equipped with yet or you might not be. And so I think, um, if I could press my own metaphor far enough, the Holy Spirit is the empty bag. He just gives you an empty bag, and you get into the situation, and you, you open up, and you remember, oh, yeah, It's not anything that I have that's going to get me through this situation. It's not anything that I'm going to produce that's going to make God's purposes come about. It's not anything that I've practiced or helped with that's going to get me through this situation. It's God himself. And you look at your empty bag and realize you have nothing to offer. And it forces you back to faith. Because that's what faith is. Otherwise, just take it to its logical conclusion. Why would God's purposes be to save you, to equip you, and then kick you out the door or kick you out the nest? And say, I think you can make it on your own. That's not faith. That's not a practice of faith. That's not walking in faith. we are to walk by faith. Not with the assurance of knowing that you are self-sufficient in and of yourself. And, um, and I think this is where we mostly get off track with what the Holy Spirit's doing and how we can rely on it. Or what it means to rely on it. And it means to not look to the stuff or to the things or to some gift that will get you through the situation. But to look to God himself. Because if, if, if you are looking for the stuff or the things or the gift, at some point that, that doesn't show up in the way that you think it will. And it doesn't produce the success that you thought it was going to give you. And so you're only left with either God failed you or you were looking in the wrong place. And God doesn't fail. Right? So here's the thing. At the end of this story, Stephen magnificently unpacks all of the ways where they've, they've missed this reality that God's presence was with them, that he was always wanting them not to look to, not to, look to the temple. That I'm not in the temple, guys. The temple is to show you that I'm with you, that my presence is here. But it's to engender faith and reliance on me. And uh, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, they would carry it into battle. And they would, they would win when they consulted the Lord, and the Lord had told them to go forward. And so it was, it was God's power with them. And it was God's ability to, to, to win the victory for them. And, um, but God wasn't, God's presence isn't in the, uh, the ark. The whole point was to engender faith towards a God who was with you and a God who will fight for you, right? And when, when God provides in the manna in the wilderness, it's, I'm your provider, guys, but I, I'm not in the manna. And I, it's not supposed to be about your ability to collect the stuff. It's supposed to be reliance on me. And so all of this stuff, the, the people, the Moses I raised up for you, he was just pointing forward to one who was coming, who would be present with you. And so all along we get fixated on the, 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 the thing that gets, I guess, experienced and, and miss the forest for the trees. And so that was true of Israel and it's true of us. We're not supposed to live off of our own righteousness or off our own abilities or off our ability to even be equipped. And I think probably the best Example of this um, is Peter when he walks on water. It, Peter never had an experience before like it, and he didn't have another one after it. And there, it doesn't matter how long Peter could have tried to practice walking on water, right? So that at the moment, when it became necessary, he would be equipped with the skills. Do you see that? He, he doesn't. But in the moment when he was called to faith, His only choice and the only way to success was faith. He had to just trust that God was going to provide exactly what he needed in the moment it was needed, which is exactly the only way to be equipped for everything is to be equipped for everything by not carrying it around but knowing that you'll be equipped if you need it. So he just steps out knowing that if God needs to uh, provide walking on water, he's going to provide it. And so you must be wondering, well, I don't my face doesn't shine and I'm not in prison thankfully yet and you know, I'm not delivering a nation and like my face doesn't glow and like if I already said that it's fine. Maybe I'm hoping my face will glow at some point. But um what does this mean? It means that God is pressing you and calling you just like he was through the words of Stephen to faith in spite of all of the prophecies that pointed forward and said that this was going to be the reality, the Holy Spirit was the extension now of Jesus's presence. He came fully embodied as a human being, and then he left, but he gave us spiritual presence, not just with us, but in us. And he fills us, and he equips us, and he Leads us and he guides us and he brings us truth and he speaks God's words and he speaks God's word through us and he testifies with us and he leads us into all truth. And I could go on and on about the, the work of the Holy Spirit and he's doing all these things in the moment that they're required. And then he asked the question, You stiff necked people, people, uncircumcised in your hearts and your ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. They, they, they resisted and they, they, they rejected the work of God every time that he provided by gripping, either gripping on to the thing and, and, stay, and holding fast to it as though it was the substance or rejecting it altogether. And I think we're guilty of the same thing. We don't really want faith because there's, there's a, it's not as concrete as we think it ought to be. And, and, and the faith is, is essentially just falling forward, trusting that there's a God that catches you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels, and you did not keep it. I'll end with this. In in that parable of the the wedding feast in Matthew chapter uh, 22, I think it was, and uh, we talked about that, about how uh, we track with the story, and he says, um, you know, the... Originally, the father sends out his servants, right? He says, invite people to the feast. And it says, they go out, and what do they do? They mistreat those servants, and they kill them. And, and that's what Stephen just said. You, you all historically have um, taken those who God has raised up, and who he's empowered, who are there to deliver you and help you, and um, you rejected them, and you killed them. And uh, so we see that play out. And then he, um, it says he goes, and um, he kills those ones, who, uh, who, uh, who killed his servants and mistreated them. And uh, we could talk about that another time. But then he goes out and he sends more servants. And he invites more people in. And we're like, yeah, we get that. The highways and byways, that's us. It's included everybody, not just the, um, not just the select few. The invitation's going out. And then we go to that part that says, uh, many are called and few are chosen. We talked about that and why it's important. But then we had that one guy, the one guy who's in the feast. And he's like not there with, uh, he's not there with, the right clothes on. And we're like, okay, what, what do we do with this guy without the clothes? What, what do we make of this? How did he get into the feast without, everybody else came and responded to the invitation, isn't that enough? And here's what's happening in this parable. The, the thing that, um, that you can't equip yourself with is circumcision of, of your heart. That was the sign that was given in the flesh to say, I belong, I belong to God. That was what originally was given to Abraham. This is how you show everybody in the flesh that you're covenant people, but it was something that was made in the flesh. But now there's circumcision of the heart so that you can obey God, love God, receive his word um, and live with his spirit in you. And that's called circumcision of the heart. Well, um, that's something that you, you don't do for yourself. And this is what it is, I think, to be either walking and doing things on your own or doing things in what God has provided. So we tend to get fixated on uh, on the guy that doesn't have the clothes on. And we go, well, what do we do with that? And the purpose of the parable was not to, uh, to go around looking for those who are not clothed in righteousness, but to warn us that there are people who can follow the rules, who will give all of their effort and all of their will to bring about something they think God wants. They can go with the flow and appear to be everything that you are, but they're, they're not doing it equipped with the thing that only God can give, which is to be clothed in, in Christ's righteousness. That's the thing you can't do for yourself. That's what is provided at the wedding feast, to be acceptable there. Because whatever it is that you have to offer is, is not acceptable. You don't have any righteousness of your own. And so the whole thing is not just... Um, Trusting in Christ for a righteousness, but trusting in uh, Christ to walk by that righteousness and to live by that righteousness, not just for what you do and hear in, uh, in the congregation and in worship, but all through your whole life. I know that we know what it is to make choices without thinking about those things. And I know... That some of us know what it is to make choices and walk in something that you would, ne- you would never have done, um, if you want to say it this way, in your old nature, in your old life. And uh, Jesus simply separates these things in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. He says, that, that, that which is of the flesh is flesh and that which of the spirit is spirit. So the things that you do, the things, the choices that you make, the, the walking in the flesh, the trying hard, the, the bringing about your purposes on your own time and on your own will, and all of that is flesh, and it doesn't, it can't inherit the kingdom. It's not serving God's purposes. That's to show up, to be at the right party, to be there at the right time, to do all of the things and dance the right jigs and know everybody's name, but to not be dressed in the right clothes. That's, that's what's happening there. And so you say, well, how do I get the right clothes? Well faith, trusting, circumcision of your heart, not in, of your flesh, not by the law, but by trusting in God and trusting in his son and his provision for you. Let me pray. Father, I pray this morning that, um, we would see something of, um, your work, um, in the spirit for us that, um, we would reckon with the reality that um, you've called us to a life of faith, which means trust. I think we sometimes expect to be equipped in different ways, but I ask that you would... um,